Let's stand together and let's turn this morning in our Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 10. Sunday morning, studying the book of Romans together. If you're with us this morning and you are without a Bible, just wave to one of the men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and uh, they'll put one into your hand. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. I'm just working on my stopwatch up here. Because I know you don't want me to start without it running. But I've got very bad news for you. I'll have to watch the other clock that's up here. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Paul writes, and he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard, speaking of the Jews? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the earth. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me, speaking of the Gentiles, and I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a holy place to come to in an unholy world, to be able to come to church where you are the sole focus, the sole center of attention. You are the, the great desire of our hearts, Lord, in this place. And we thank you for the privilege that you have afforded us of also supplying us with a book that is uniquely holy in all of the world, and that is the Bible. And we pray, Lord, that you would meet with us and teach us and speak to us through your word this morning. And we ask for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In this section of chapter 10, the Apostle Paul continues to address the unbelief of the Jews in general concerning uh, Jesus as their Messiah. And as we studied last week in the first 13 verses of uh, this chapter, Paul uh, dealt with the catastrophic ignorance that was uh, present in, among the Jewish people in general 2,000 years ago and is still uh, as strongly present, and that is uh, the ignorance of the fact that the righteousness that is required in order to have a relationship with God and enter, to enter into heaven is a perfect righteousness. 
And when a person realizes that a perfect righteousness is what is required in order to enter into heaven and to have a relationship with God, then it causes a person to abandon any attempt to establish that righteousness on the basis of works, even works that might, people might come up with out of the law of Moses. And then to turn to God and say, I see that if the law of Moses can't produce a righteousness within me that will qualify me for heaven, then I know that no law, no rules, no religion can have any possibility of doing that. I see that I've been disqualified uh, for making myself presentable to heaven by virtue of the fact that all have sinned and as a result come short of the glory of God. And when a person gives up on attempting to establish their own righteousness in order to get into heaven one day, and then turns to God and says to God, where can I find this righteousness that will make me acceptable to you and, and is acceptable to the holy confines of heaven, and uh, then the Holy Spirit will always be faithful to lead such a person to Jesus who then provides us with His righteousness when we put our faith in Him. And then in verses 14 to 21, Paul plainly explains that Israel is solely responsible. Not the Gentiles, not God, not the law of Moses, but the Jews themselves are solely responsible for their unbelief concerning Jesus. And what is true of the Jews is equally true of every single person in the world that rejects Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior. And Paul begins his argument with a reminder to us as Christians of the importance of sharing the gospel with those who uh, are not yet Christians. And it's good to be reminded, I think, that the book of Romans and the theme of, book, of the book of Romans is the gospel. God's provision to mankind of the good news of salvation. Salvation from the penalty of sin. Salvation from the power of sin. Salvation one day from the very presence of sin. And that all of that is received by simply putting on our, our trust in Jesus as our Savior. And that that gospel is the single greatest news that anyone will ever hear in the course of their lives. And uh, Paul has spent the first eight chapters of the book of Romans detailing the perfection of this gospel, the glory of this gospel. And he, but he is fully aware of the fact, like perhaps no one else has been fully aware of it in the history of the church. He's fully aware of the fact that God can provide a gospel to mankind, that He can provide this message and this truth to mankind but that none of it does anyone any good unless they then hear the gospel and then have a chance to respond to that gospel. And Paul is declaring that who else is going to share this gospel, this invitation from God to mankind to be saved except Christians, except people who have already been changed and impacted by that gospel and experienced the power of it. We certainly can't wait for the world to share the gospel. They never will. Uh, God could have used angels to share the gospel to the world. It certainly, in my mind, would be far more efficient, but He hasn't chosen to do so. He's chosen that the gospel will move forward 
through the lives of, uh, of Christians, of those of us who have had our lives changed by that very uh, gospel. And it's a privilege to carry that gospel. It is also a responsibility to carry that gospel. And uh, the Bible, as Paul makes clear, as, as Christians, we are debtors to do so. Uh, given the fact that someone has uh, brought that gospel to us at some point in time in our life and allowed not only our lives but our eternities to be changed, and we're debtors then to provide that same opportunity uh, to others as well. And Paul describes the pure logic of what uh, I'm talking about here, and in, 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 as he puts it in verses 14 and 15, he describes the pure logic of it in five words. The word call, the word believe, the word heard, the word preaching, and the word sent. And the progression that he's laying out here goes like this. In order for a person to call on God to be saved, they have to first believe uh, the gospel. But in order to believe in the gospel, they must first hear the gospel. But in order to hear the gospel, someone must first, first preach the gospel to them. And in order for someone to preach, they must be sent. And as Jesus declared in His great commission, every single one of us as Christians has been sent to do exactly this, to share the gospel that has changed our lives with those that don't yet know the gospel. Jesus declared famously in that great commission, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And it is a great responsibility that's been entrusted to us, but it isn't always easy. And because Paul knows that evangelism, he knows that the Great Commission uh, he knows that mission work, whether one-on-one -on -one in the town that we were born and raised in or on the other side of the world, uh, that it isn't always easy. And thus Paul gives us this beautiful encouragement from Isaiah chapter 57, uh, 52, verse 7. Uh, notice in verse 15, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And, I, and Isaiah here, as Paul quotes him, he wrote of the feet of the messengers who brought the news to the Jews in Babylon uh, of their eminent release from their captivity, uh, of, of the Babylonian captivity. And Paul then applies those words to those who carry an even greater good news of the gospel. Uh, of a release from an even greater captivity, and that is the captivity of sin. And the imagery of Isaiah is interesting as he speaks about beautiful feet. Uh, I knew a person in my family when we were children, and she was absolutely convinced that her feet were beautiful. And uh, it was very hard for older brothers to endure uh, this clamoring related to her feet. I didn't share her opinion. I don't, uh, but, but uh, when uh, most of us, I think, uh, when we think about feet, they're rarely considered to be the most attractive part uh, of, of the body. 
and uh, I, I don't uh, ha get Instagram at all. I'm not on it. I have enough distractions already in my life. It doesn't make me a better person, uh, but I will have a greater reward in heaven because I spend the time that normally would be on Instagram in prayer and study of the Word. Thank you. But I assume that if you're on Instagram that you very rarely see a picture of feet. Uh, people are not uh, that excited or they don't consider their feet to be so beautiful. A meal, yes, they'll put that on there or some pose of theirs or whatever. But uh, we spend most of our time uh, trying to hide uh, our feet. But here Paul is talking about the fact that feet are considered beautiful concerning the person who has carried the gospel, when those feet are used to carry the gospel uh, on the part of a messenger toward uh, someone who is then able to hear the gospel and to trust in it. And you think about who was the one or two or three persons that were most impactful in sharing the gospel uh, with you, that then God gave life to that gospel and you became a Christian. And, I mean, you can take the ugliest part of their body, which is typically their feet, and it becomes beautiful to you because it was those feet that were used by God to carry that person into contact with you uh, to hear the greatest message again that any of us will ever hear. And what we feel toward those uh, people, Paul is telling us, how we esteem them. Others will esteem us in the same way is we bring this gospel to them and they become Christians as well. Now, Paul, the experienced apostle that he is, he's very candid about the fact that not all evangelism is going to be successful. Because as he says there in verse 16, notice, uh, because the call uh, by God to be saved, it simply will not be obeyed uh, by all. Uh, we can get all of verse 14 right and uh, the entire progression right, and bring the gospel to a person, and still the person uh, may refuse that gospel. And God allows people the freedom uh, to do that. But uh, the, uh, the, their rejection is never, ever a poor reflection upon the gospel, but it is always a reflection upon the heart uh, of the hearer. The gospel is always a good thing, but as Jesus says, he spoke in the parable of the soils as the sower went out to seed and some of the seed, the seed was always good. The seed fell on diff four different kinds of soil uh, and it fell upon the hard heart and the soil representing hearts and, it, and then uh, upon the shallow heart, upon the crowded heart, and then upon the receptive heart and, and then that gospel brought forth 30, 60, and, and 100 uh, fold. And, uh, and so it always reveals what a person does with the gospel. It's never a reflection upon the gospel, but upon the condition of our heart. And, and in fact, uh, Paul quotes verse, uh, Isaiah chapter 53 in, in all of this, as he says uh, there in verse 16, Lord, who has obeyed our report? And you uh, might be familiar concerning Isaiah chapter 53 that that's the very first verse of that great messianic uh, chapter that details the death and the burial and the resurrection of Messiah of Jesus written 740 years before uh, all of it ever happened in the very first verses, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been, been revealed. 
And Isaiah was predicting exactly what the Jews did by and large with Jesus, and that was they refused to believe the witness of the Old Testament Scriptures, including the witness of Isaiah, to the fact that Jesus was and is the Messiah. And this is a reality not only concerning unbelieving Jews today, but I think it is a reality uh, concerning the, the Gentile world by and large as well. God invites everyone to be saved, but He will not force anyone uh, to be saved. You notice in verse 17, it's a wonderful verse in the Bible, Paul then continues, and he provides us with a very, very important statement concerning saving faith, concerning uh, the key to saving faith, the source of, of saving faith, when he says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Uh, you, say, you can say, listen, I need another cup of coffee to try and work through uh, that. <laughs> I mean, it makes my mind go in circles. Let me read it to you from a couple of other translations. I think it's helpful. Uh, the NIV, as is, is, is difficult it is for me to quote the NIV, I will do it here. And this is tongue-in-cheek, by the way, for those of you who are visiting. He says, uh, the NIV puts it, consequently, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. The New Living Translation puts it this way, so faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. And most translations don't put it as it is in the New King James or in, in the King James, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, but rather by the Word of uh, of uh, Christ, and uh, w which I think gives us a much clearer understanding of what Paul is saying here. In other words, Paul is telling us that saving faith is produced by hearing something, by hearing some message, and that message is the truth about Jesus Christ as it is found in the Bible, as it's found in the Word of God. And Paul declares in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Scriptures themselves that in any honest hearer, it will always produce faith. This verse is, uh, I think, one of the most instructive in all of the Bible uh, concerning faith. And I think that the subject of, of biblical faith is something that is almost completely misunderstood by non-Christians. And, uh, but I think it's largely misunderstood by many Christians as well. Uh, many people think that faith is a purely religious thing, that it belongs solely to the realm of religion, and that if you are not religious, then you don't have to think about faith or worry about faith, or that you don't have to walk by faith or, or live by faith. But every time a person gets behind the wheel of a car and starts to drive that car, it is an exercise deeply rooted in faith. I am trusting that everyone else on the road is going to obey the rules of the road, that they're going to stay in their lane and not drive head-on into my car, that they're going to obey the stop signs and the stop lights and so forth. But the interesting thing about it is that when we get into that car and we begin to drive, we have no absolute guarantee that people are going to do that. 
but we climb in behind the steering wheel and we start to drive anyway because we've weighed the odds of getting killed in an accident against the odds of leaving and returning home safely, and we've determined that to drive is a reasonable act of faith. Uh, we're being wheeled into the operating room for a surgery. And whatever the surgery might be, we have no absolute guarantee that it will be successful. We have no guarantee that we will survive it. But we've done our investigation of the medical procedure. We've asked the surgeon all of our questions. Then we've gone to the highest authority of all to investigate, and that is Google, to check out online what it is that is being said there. The, the physicians must hate Google on some level. But we ask our surgeon all the questions that we might have. We go and we investigate it further as, as we might like. And then we conclude that while we have no guarantee of a successful surgery, no guarantee that we will even survive it, but based upon the facts that we do know, we conclude that this is a reasonable thing to do. It's a reasonable step of faith. And we give them permission to cut us open, move things around, even remove things altogether. But it isn't blind faith or faith in faith in situations like this, but this is an exercise of a reasonable faith. And one set of facts has been weighed against another, and we've concluded that this step of faith is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And I think that some people may be absolutely shocked to hear me use the term reasonable and faith in the same sentence, but it's how we conduct our lives every single day. The second thing that I, I think is a great misunderstanding in terms of faith today, and, and I, it is that I would contend that most people think of faith today is, when they think of it, they think it means something, believing in something despite having no evidence for it at all, for that something. That all faith is blind faith. Uh, or that it is faith, uh, living by faith is putting your faith in faith. Uh, but you notice that Paul, he doesn't, doesn't call upon anyone to do anything of the sort. He calls upon us to put our faith in Jesus for salvation based upon a message, based upon the truth about Jesus as it's found in the Bible based upon an examination and a thorough, thorough search of his life, of his ministry, of his teaching, to put our faith upon Jesus himself. And Paul does this because he's well aware of the fact that faith is not a self-existent thing. Faith is always placed in something, and thus our faith is only as good as the thing that we put our faith in. And very importantly, Paul is telling us here that saving faith is a byproduct of something else, and that that something else is the hearing of what the Bible has to say about Jesus, again, about His life, about His ministry, about His teaching, about His death, His burial, and His resurrection, about the gospel that He's provided, and His call to repentance, and His call to salvation. 
And Paul is declaring that if we examine Jesus and His life and His teaching, then saving faith will be the result. In this regard, I think uh, the question that uh, was posed to Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders of His day in a uh, a venomous uh, opposition to Him and, and in the midst of that opposition, their rejection of him, uh, it, 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 every bit as much as, as is described by Paul, the rejection of the Jews by and large at the end of verse 21, a disobedient and a contrary people. They were in Jesus' face all of the time, absolutely rejected him. Not only his claims to be divine, but rejected him in terms of his claim to be the promised Jewish Messiah. And one day in the midst of one of these conversations that went on regularly, Jesus then posed a simple question to them. And the question that he posed to them was, which of you convicts me of sin? I think that the uh, Living Bible puts it perfectly. Jesus asked, which of you can truthfully accuse me of one single sin? They had watched his life for months. They had listened to his teaching for months and for years. And Jesus poses the question, which of you can convict me of a single sin that you've witnessed, that I've spoken, anything that I've done wrong? Give me a single reason for rejecting my claims to be uh, the Son of God and to be the Messiah and the Savior of the Jews and of the entire world. And when he posed that question, which of you convicts me of sin? There is a pause at that moment. And do you know what their response was? Silence. Absolute, unbroken silence. And these men would have given anything that they had. They might have given their firstborn. They certainly would have given their right arm to have one single sin that they witnessed in Jesus' life to throw back into his face as a basis for rejecting his claims concerning himself. But they could not break the silence. And how long that silence occurred, we're not told in John's account of it. In John chapter 8. And so Jesus broke the silence himself and, and declared uh, to them and, and went on to say, And if I tell the truth, then why do you not uh, believe me? No one can break the silence that is produced by that question, Which of you convicts me of sin? And then the logical question after that is, and, and if I tell you the truth, then why do you not uh, believe me? And the reason that no one could convict him of sin is that as John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God, without spot and blemish, who takes away the sin uh, of the world. And the Bible teaches that Every single person in this room and every single person in this world is one day going to stand before Jesus. And he will uh, occupy one of two roles as as every person individually stands before him. 
Uh, he will either be at that moment our Savior or he will be uh, our uh, judge in, 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 that, uh, in that moment in time. And if you refuse the salvation that he offers, uh, his call that you put your trust in him for that salvation, then I tell you lovingly, but I, say, I tell you unflinchingly, and I, and I tell you firmly that you better be prepared to answer the same question when it's posed to you. Name the sin that you found in me that caused you to reject me and my offer of salvation to you. And if you find yourself before him and he is your judge rather than your savior, your response to him will be the same as it was 2,000 years early and these Jewish religious leaders, it will be silent. But if you're determined to do that, then please by all means be ready for the moment. And I would challenge anyone to read the Bible and see if you can find a single fault in him, a single reason for rejecting him, rejecting his teaching, including his call for us to be saved. As Jesus declared, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then in that search and examination of Jesus' life, see if what hasn't happened to a multitude of people before you doesn't also happen to you. That we then, a person then discovers that, uh, that, uh, that he is worthy of our faith, and the search ultimately brings them to salvation in, in him. What is so unreasonable, so unworthy of of our faith concerning God's assessment of sin, us as sinners, that we are less than perfect. Don't we see the proof of it all around us in the world every single day? Don't we see the proof of it in our own hearts and our own lives every single day? What is so unreasonable or so unworthy of our faith about God's declaration that our sin has separated us from Him? and that we're in need of, uh, of His salvation? Is it so inconceivable that at the end of our search for uh, meaning and purpose in life, that we then discover a God at the end of that search who is so holy that but one sin in our lives would separate us uh, from Him? And, and would we want uh, something else to be true of God? Would we want to come to the end of our search in the midst of this sin-filled uh, life and this sin-filled uh, world, and that at the end of, the, uh, of our search and our seeking after God to discover Him to be, just as the old song puts it, just a slob like one of us? What a letdown that would be. And what is so unreasonable or so unworthy of our faith that God has provided in His Son the perfect antidote for our fallen condition, a Savior who is the perfect match for all of our deepest needs, providing us with the forgiveness of sins, and with that forgiveness of sins, a release from the guilt that hounds every single one of us in life and through life, 
providing us with a meaning and a purpose in life, freeing us from a life that is absolutely empty and meaningless and absolutely a frustration uh, apart from God, bringing us into a relationship with Himself, the very relationship that we've been created for. And without that relationship, nothing in life can make sense or it can satisfy. Only this gospel, only this relationship with God frees us from the deepest loneliness that is a part of every human life and is a part of our search in, in life. That woman at the well, as she's married five times and now has given up on marriage and all, is just shacking up with people at this point. And she's trying to do in her own way to try and find satisfaction somewhere in the world. For her, it was relationships with, with men. And one after the other after the other, and no satisfaction at all until Christ comes into her life. It's a lonely life at our core until we're in the relationship that we've been created for with God. And then what's so unreasonable about putting our faith in a salvation that provides us with a victory over death and provides us with everlasting life. As you read the Bible, you have to at least give God credit for having thought through all of our problems, for having thought through all of our needs, and then having provided for them and I would contend that only the Creator could know us so well as to see our needs so clearly and then to provide them so perfectly in the Savior that He sent into the world. And is it so unreasonable to be called to put our faith in Jesus, the one who fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah in His first coming alone? That great prophetic portrait that God paints in the Old Testament, that verbal portrait, that, so that we would recognize the Messiah, that when He came, Jesus who declared Himself and who could argue with Him as the fulfillment of the law and of the prophets. And further, in that very regard, is testified to in the volume of the book, every bit of the law of Moses speaks of Him. Every bit of the tabernacle and ultimately the temple speaks of Him. The furnishings, the bronze altar, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the inner veil, the ark of the covenant, all of it spoke of Him. The sacrifices, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offerings, all of it testified of Him. As Jesus said, to the Jewish religious leaders who were rejecting Him, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of Me. And if you choose to reject Jesus as your Savior, then on that day of judgment, you will need to be prepared to do the impossible, and that is to lay a case for unbelief concerning Him as your Savior that is stronger than the case that God has laid in the Scriptures for faith in Him. And I would say good luck with that, and because you see, the rejection of Jesus is every bit as much a position of faith as trusting in Him is. And ignorance of the Bible 
and ignorance of Jesus' life, of His teaching, it will not be a valid excuse on that day. Because certainly, as citizens of the United States of America, we have Bibles enough all around us. Anyone can get a Bible. You've walked into a church today that offered you a Bible for free. And, and so to get at the end of the search or the end of my life or the end of whatever and claim that I never investigated it, I never looked into it, I never gave it any kind of uh, serious thought at all, and, 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 and investigated, uh, spent even an hour investigating these things for myself. And it's funny in a sad way that so many of the people who accuse Christians of living by blind faith and trusting in Jesus for salvation reject Him without knowing anything about Him or without having made any investigation uh, of His life and of His teaching, uh, which is nothing less uh, than being guilty of the very thing that we're accused of, and that is a, a blind faith or for them a blind unbelief possessing no rational, no biblical foundation for unbelief. And it's important to understand that God isn't asking you to blindly trust in Jesus for salvation. You have to take your eyes off of the word faith. Faith is not the supreme thing in that verse uh, 17. That is to put the cart before uh, the horse. Instead, to do what Paul calls on us to do, and that is to put our eyes on Jesus, to learn about Him, to learn about His life, His ministry, His teaching. And Paul says, if a person will do that, faith will follow as a byproduct. Don't try and work faith up in this room this morning, or work it up out of ignorance, or work it up out of a, a, a complete a lack of knowledge concerning Jesus. It will never occur. And that's not what God calls anyone to do. He calls us to investigate the life of Jesus. And Paul declares that when a person does that, we put our eyes upon him, faith will follow as a byproduct. And faith in Jesus as uh, my Savior is not intended to be blind. And it is not blind, but rather it is to be the result of my investigation of him in the Scriptures. And again, the offer of this church always is a free Bible to anyone and to investigate the life of Jesus and see if uh, you don't come away even as the messengers of Jesus' enemies did as they went to arrest Him at one time and came back empty-handed and said, no man ever spoke like this man. Paul then closes this section when he dismisses two questions that might be asked as an explanation for Jewish unbelief, and he does so in verses 18 through 21. And the first is in eight, verse 18, and Paul is, essentially addresses the question of, was Jewish unbelief due to the fact that they had not had an opportunity to hear the gospel? And Paul reminds, uh, responds here that they could not claim to have been overlooked in any way in this regard. And he quotes Psalm 19, that great psalm that speaks of how nature speaks of the existence of God and how it communicates day unto day and night unto night uh, of the existence of God. And, and he takes and uh, declares, so too the message of the gospel has gone out far and wide to the Jews. Uh, 
We remember that Jesus, in the three and a half years of His public ministry, He made the Jews the very highest priority in evangelism and, and in ministry. Uh, concerning Jerusalem, so early, uh, following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and uh, as early as Acts chapter 5, the Jewish religious leaders charged Peter and the other apostles, and they said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in His name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We know that it was the established pattern of the apostle Paul on all three of his missionary journeys, to go into city after city after city and always to make the Jews the priority. Whenever it was possible, he would go into, first to the synagogue and he would preach Christ as the Christ from the Jewish Scriptures. He made the Jews the priority, though the apostle to the Gentiles, he still made the Jews the priority and then only moved from them to the Gentiles as he was forced to do so. No, Paul says the Jews have been the most evangel had been the most evangelized people in the world in the first century of the church. He says and addresses the question in verses 19 and 20, was Jewish unbelief perhaps due to the fact that they'd heard the gospel? Sure, they had heard it, but it was incomprehensible to them. They couldn't understand it. And what Paul does here, it is absolutely magnificent under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, verse 21, and he an answers the question by essentially declaring that if the Gentiles raised outside of all of the spiritual privileges of the Jews could understand the gospel, and then flock to that gospel, coming from a comparative ignorance, spiritually speaking, compared uh, to the Jews. And if they could understand the gospel and flock to it, then the Jews had no grounds for claiming that the gospel was beyond their understanding, as Paul declares it there in verse 19. And then in verse 20, he, he quotes Isaiah uh, chapter 65, verse 1, which prophesied that the Gentiles would find God and that God would reveal Himself uh, to them, that all of this had been prophesied by God 740 years before Jesus even came into the world. And then finally in verse 21, Paul closed this section with the real uh, explanation for Jewish unbelief. And he quoted there in, in, quotes there in verse 21, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and to a contrary people. And what he does is he returns back to Isaiah chapter uh, 65. And uh, he quoted verse 1 in, in, in verse 20. And now in verse 21 he, he uh, quotes uh, verse 2 in this powerful picture of the loving heart of God toward Israel. And, and he puts it in contrast to the hard, rebellious heart uh, of Israel. And it's a very profound verbal picture that, uh, that is put uh, before us here uh, of the love of God for them as He actively and in uh, an incredible vulnerability on the part of God, willing to make Himself rejected by His creation, and He holds out His hands to them, and He's done so supremely in, 
sending His Son to them as their Messiah and as their Savior, and their response to all of this was a refusal to obey God's call to the nation of Israel to trust in Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior. And further, they not only didn't receive that message, but they spent all of their time and all of their lives, by and large, blaspheming Him, blaspheming the gospel, and, uh, and, and, and resisting Jesus at every turn. And Paul is declaring that none of this was due to a failure, to hear the gospel or to understand the gospel, but rather was based in a deliberate rebellion and contempt on their part toward God and toward His Son, Jesus. And that is so heavy and must have been so hard for Paul to say these things to the Jewish people and of the Jewish people. But it had to be said, and Paul knew that if he didn't say it, probably no one would. Even in presenting the gospel and the need for the gospel this morning, deliberately pointed earlier in the sermon in doing so. Less than the preaching the gospel or the preaching or teaching of a sermon is the old saying is, is, uh, says about uh, such things that if it were a poison, it couldn't kill anyone, but if it was medicine, it couldn't hurt anyone. We're talking about heaven and earth and heaven and hell. We're talking about the truth of God. We're talking about our salvation, talking about the most serious decision that a person will ever make in life. It's not a time for stories about puppies or kittens or whatever might be the path that we try to choose to somehow get people to think that we're nice people as Christians and maybe they would consider becoming one as, as well. And so Paul speaks the truth, not just to them, but he speaks the truth to us as well. I'm thankful that he did so because it needed to be said. And if you're a Gentile, that is a non-Jew here today, and you're not yet a Christian, you can't speak for the Jews. You can't speak for anyone other than yourself. You can't change what Paul is talking about here in these verses that is as true of the Jews by and large today as it was 2,000 years ago. But what you do have control over is what you will do with God's offer of salvation. And still being made to you that offer with open arms as he describes himself in that verse 21. And God has shown his heart toward you, toward you personally, not just the whole big wide world, toward you personally in sending his very son to die on that cross in order to provide you with a salvation that you don't deserve and you could never earn. And doing so because of his great love for you and his great desire that you would be saved and come into the relationship with God that every single human being has been created for. God is not on trial here. He is never on trial uh, in, in any real sense by man, whether collectively all seven billion or 
on the part of an individual. We're the ones who are on trial. With what we do with this God and what we do with this offer, and I urge you to put your trust in Jesus this morning and become one of his disciples while you still have the opportunity, and death will bring an end to that opportunity, and no one knows when that is coming in life. And if you'd like to put your trust in Jesus Christ this morning, make him your Savior, <clears throat> enter into the fullness of what God has planned for you, <clears throat> there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to become a Christian this morning and become a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that the word gospel and is not, it's not just words, but that it is a word that describes a historical event and the, indeed the single greatest series of events in human history. And that is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And from this little speck on planet earth, Lord, called Calvary Chapel Modesto, we bless you and we praise you and we honor you for providing this good news to us. And we thank you for the difference, the indescribable difference that your gospel has made in our lives, in this life, to say nothing of the life to come. We thank you this morning for the beautiful feet that brought that gospel to us. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, in your power, in your prompting, Lord, that you would make our feet likewise beautiful to the people that are all around us every single day. And we ask these things, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.